0: Hi, this is Mike Stern. I'm a guitar player, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome. Welcome. To the Follow Your Dream podcast.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Jeff Bova, a Grammy award winning keyboard star with dozens of platinum and gold records to his credit. He won the Grammy for Album of the Year as a producer of Celine Dion's Falling Into You. He toured with Herbie Hancock, one of my biggest musical heroes, in his Rocket Band in the 1980s. And Jeff has worked with a who's who in music, including Katy Perry, Michael Jackson, Meatloaf, Tina Turner, Eric Clapton, Cher, and even Iron Maiden. His most recent work was orchestral arranging for Joe Bonamassa's Hollywood Bowl debut this past August. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musical guests, Jeff and I are going to do what I call a song fest. I've asked him to send me a handful of his best works. We'll play a bit and we'll talk about them and you'll get the backstories and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, my featured song is called Python from the album PGS7 by my band, Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, Jeff played with Herbie Hancock, one of the greatest musicians of all time. And my song is basically a tribute to Herbie's song, Chameleon. So I thought that it worked. So Jeff Bova, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby.
0: Robert, great to be here. Great to be here. And thank you so much for the introduction.
1: Come on. You've done so much. This is crazy. We're going to talk about all of these guys. But I'm sitting here. We had this little tête-à-tête before we started I'm looking at your setup there behind you. It looks like a one of the uh, control rooms at NASA, okay? This guy's got more stuff that he's got in his area. And I'm just curious, do you still go out on the road? Do you use all this equipment or what?
0: Okay, well, as far as the road goes, I only recently went out on the road uh, with Joe Bonamassa just to warm the band up for uh, the Hollywood Bowl concert in August. But I haven't been out on the road in many, many years the rig you see behind me is, is actually, it was both a uh, road rig and for, for a studio where I could bring the entire keyboard show with me into control rooms. So all pre-wired and just a few connections, and I have this entire uh, you know wall of synths you know, prepared to be able to access at any time. But these days, it's largely I'm working in the box, and I just use the outboard uh, processing gear. As posted since. It's a new world,
1: isn't it? I mean, during the pandemic, we all learned how to operate differently. I actually recorded two albums remotely during the pandemic, something I had never done before. And now it's just commonplace to do recording, you know, flying uh, parts back and forth around the world by email and the like. I assume that's what you're doing as well.
0: Absolutely. It's become the practice. In fact, I hadn't ever met Joe Bonamassa in person over working with him the last 18 years because I've done everything remotely. And we only met for the first time in rehearsals for for his uh, Hollywood Bowl gig.
1: Isn't that crazy? All right, so talk about Joe. Joe's one of the greatest guitarists out there. What was it like to work with him, and how did it change now that you went out there in person?
0: Oh, well, first of all, from the very beginning with a guitarist at that level, uh, and to be able to uh, support him because he he's tried so many different directions in terms of uh, music whether he's going with raw blues or he's looking at material from like even like uh, the sixties and seventies that that really influenced him so I got to really you know pull out my uh, you know sort of my library of, of uh, chops and understanding of the music there. Uh, and Kevin Shirley, his producer, who actually we originally started working together on Iron Maiden, brought me into the Joe Bonamassa world. You know, having met him, now I have such a greater understanding of really one his true genius, his unbelievable, you know, I guess choice of of amps and guitars that go into his sound which I didn't fully have a grasp of because I'd never seen him play live ever before or ever been in the studio when I've actually seen the kind of musical choices that he makes.
1: Well, he is a great musician. I have a friend and somebody that's been a guest on my podcast that played with him for quite a while, I think, Anton Fig, who's a drummer, used to be on The Letterman Show for so many years. And I, I believe Anton was his regular drummer for a while. Am I right?
0: That's right. And uh, when I when I was in New York, I worked with Anton many times on uh, re- recording sessions there. Anton's a, you know, dear friend and a wonderful player. Yeah,
1: 100 percent. I totally agree with that. All right. So talk about Celine Dion. I mean, this is an artist that is a world class artist. And how did you get with her?
0: OK, for a number of years, I've been working with Jim Steinman uh, since the mid 80s and her Meatloaf, right? Yeah, he's a songwriter, producer for Meatloaf. Okay. And Jim was doing a solo album that uh, happened to have a number of the songs that Celine was going to be uh, uh, eventually working on. These were literally almost the demos. It was called um, Pandora's Box, and he featured four different singers throughout. And, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, I guess, it's how can I best describe it? You know, he really. His songs from the very beginning are these huge epic 7 8 minute minute songs.
1: Right, very dramatic, very big.
0: Yeah. And it's all coming back to me now, which was the uh, the big single off that album and I think it may have been the first single off the Falling Into You album was a 7 8 minute long epic piece. And we did the original version in like 1987. Fast forward to 1995, 1996, when we recorded the album, Jim presented the song to her. And it was such an epic, vocally and all that, that she decided to cut it.
1: Now, was this just before or after she did that Titanic song? Because that was, you know, what made her, I guess.
0: This would have been shortly before, I believe. Okay. I'm sorry. Actually, no, I'm wrong. I believe it's after.
1: Okay, because that also was a big dramatic song, so it kind of fits with the Jim Steinman type of thing.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, the huge anthemic piece there, yeah.
1: All right, now I know you work with Meatloaf. Did you work with Meatloaf during the Jim Steinman era as well?
0: Yes, I worked on Bad Out of Hell too. Okay, and- number two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was, I think, ten years after a little more uh, greater than 10 years after the original Bad Out of Hell.
1: All right. Tell me this, because I can't remember exactly. But he had that great song on the Meatloaf album. I don't know if it was on the first one or the second one, where he had Phil Rizzuto doing the commentary about the guy r- running around the bases and coming to home. Of course, it was a, a sexual kind of orientation type of thing. Which album was that one on?
0: That's on the original Bad Out of Hell, Paradise by Okay. <laughs> and it's an iconic... Pace. It probably changed and created so many lives. <laughs> okay, here we go. we
1: <laughs> for Sure. Okay, so you've worked with Steinman a fair amount. You've worked with so many great others. You got Katy Perry. You got Eric Clapton. Tell me about Clapton. What did you do with Eric?
0: Oh, Clapton. Yeah, I I, I played on. Um, oh, geez, Let's see. I, I have to double check the uh, album titles here. But we can talk about it. Russ Titleman was producing Eric, and I've been working on a number of Russ Titleman uh, projects his band had just come off the road greg filling games was his main keyboard player so in the studio the band performed live but they needed supplemental keyboards on a number of the songs so uh I was, I was brought in to uh to play additional keyboards on some of the tracks and russ was also introducing eric to pre-production so we were doing pre-production on, on a number of the songs as well so that that was that was my role on, on two parts there is, uh, you know, supplemental keyboards and doing some programming uh, with actually Jimmy Braylauer, uh, programming drums and myself programming uh, uh, some keys to build some foundations for some of the songs that were not as live oriented. Got it. I
1: also had one of his uh, main musicians on the podcast, Nathan East, his bass player was on here and he was talking, of course, about playing with Eric. Uh, he's been out on the road with him for years. I mean, Clapton is just one of those guys that is iconic in the industry. And uh, kudos to you that you got to play with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he was one of my heroes growing up, you know, my time with Cream. I mean, I think I was really introduced to him on the John Mayle and the Blues Breakers album. Really? You go back that far. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Junior, junior high. And you know, one of the, one of the band members I was in a, in a band. he brought in he Says, "This is it, guys. We got to do the blues. We got to play the blues." And he put that on. It was just it blew our minds just to hear it coming from that place. You know, from a, a British blues you know perspective. Yeah. Well,
1: you sound a little bit like me. I came of age musically during that whole British invasion era. Okay, and it was a remarkable era for musicians, of course. And the interesting thing, I've had so many guys from that era, particularly British artists, on the show. And, you know, what they really did was they took American blues, which America basically had ignored. They took it back to England. They incorporated it in their music, and they gave it back to us. And then we fell in love with the blues, didn't we?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, it was one one late night in L.A. on a session, I was working with Richard Drummey from Go West, guitarist and Go West. And I said to him, I said, you know, the way you guys hear music. And basically, like you said, you hear the, this American music and you bring it back out through this, this other perspective. And I, I think I don't know what it is that you guys do in terms of your thinking, your perception of, of the, all these great American music how this comes out this way. But that, to me, is the the genius of it in terms of taking it through their their perspective and their ears. Yeah.
1: All the British artists said the same thing, that their world was American music, and their goal in life was to make it as artists in America. Okay? They wanted to be able to, you know, hit the top of the charts in America. And we had great music too, but I, I think, again, the blues just got overlooked in America.
0: Absolutely. I agree. I agree.
1: Did you come of age musically at that time, or were you of a different era?
0: Uh, no, around that time too. I mean, it, if we're talking about like John Mayle and uh, Cream and all that, I was, I was essentially, in I was in junior high at that particular time. So that that's when I first started playing in bands. You know, inspired initially by the Beatles, and when I became uh, o- old enough to like start actually uh, playing playing in bands, where bands were forming for real. Because I, I think when the Beatles. Uh, I want to hold your hand. That was probably fourth grade for me just to date myself.
1: Oh, wait a minute. You you must've watched the Beatles on Sullivan, right?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: How many millions of us got started because of that one night?
0: I'm one of them. I am truly one of them. <laughs> yep. I was playing classical piano lessons and playing trumpet. And all of a sudden I wanted a keyboard. I said, well, I wanted to play guitar because guitar was cool. Right. And, first group of guys we after the beatles we got like tennis rackets and badminton rackets got parts from radio shack and made make-believe faders and stuff and would rehearse lip-syncing to the songs <laughs> and you know playing guitar seemed like a logical thing but you know i just had access to a keyboard so i said well i guess that's the closest thing to uh to you know s- to some sort of a band instrument and then dave clark five came out and i thought the uh, You know, okay, there's cool. There's a role I can play.
1: That's right. Mike Smith had that little organ thing going. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I also started on trumpet. And when the Beatles came out, I said the same thing. Trumpet is no longer very cool. So I taught myself guitar and bass because my colleagues that I was playing in a band with, if you want to call it that, they didn't know either the treble clef or the bass clef. I already knew the treble clef. So I said, all right, I'll volunteer to learn the bass clef. And you, you, you had a funny allusion there to the fact you had like the tennis rackets, you know, pretending you, you were playing a guitar. We didn't have electric guitars. We all had acoustic guitars. We had these little Norelco reel-to-reel tape recorders that had a microphone. We used to Scotch tape the microphone onto the body of the guitar so that we have an electric guitar. That's wow. how it started. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because all that was so new. Second point: we take all that for granted now. And uh, the idea of, you know, these uh, both the instruments and the band and that particular kind of thing, a collaborative group of individuals coming together in that way.
1: It was brand new for us, for sure. All right. You know, we mentioned the Beatles and one of the big fans and the guy that says he started it all from that Ed Sullivan show was Billy Joel. So tell us about your experience with Billy Joel.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Billy, at the particular time I was working at Power Station, I was Working on the Cindy Lauper True Colors album, and Billy was in up and upstairs in Studio C, uh, working on on that album and uh, the bridge. Uh, that was the first time I got got involved, and just by being in the building, there was a whole network and a family of people all working together. And David Lee Roth was working in Studio B, and Billy was upstairs with Phil Ramone, and I was working on the Cindy album and Cindy collaborating on one song on that album with uh, with Billy. And when they needed to put together the basic format of the song and and the keyboards, uh, she said, well, hey, my guy Jeff is downstairs working on this. Why, why, don't you, why don't you come up? So Phil Ramone invited me to come up and and help put together the track. And that was my introduction to Phil Ramone and Billy Joel. And Phil had me, had me come in and work on some of the other songs and just. first time a producer left me in the room and with the engineer and said, I'll be back. (laughs) I'll be, I'll be be back. Oh God.
1: Okay. So talk about somebody else, Michael Jackson. What'd you do with Michael?
0: Okay. Michael, I worked on the history album. There was uh, quite a number of us that were brought in. They're always looking for different ideas, different sound programmers. So I did a little bit of both. Initially I went in because I used the Rhodes chroma with Herbie and they had a Rhodes chroma there, and nobody knew how to how to use it and program it. so they had heard I was the guy with the chromas so i uh, w- went in initially just to show them how to set it up, share some sounds with them, and how to use that instrument because that was uh again a kind of a fringe instrument, even though uh you know herbie made it made it famous and a few other artists so that's where I got introduced to it and then they brought me in to the world a little deeper by then programming sounds and other instruments just as a program kind of give him a library of sounds to work with. I see.
1: So did you work with Michael or were you kind of in the background doing that other stuff?
0: Um, in the background, the other stuff, the way Michael worked, even when I was doing some parts on some of the tracks and the tracks didn't have any titles to them. All that was really kept, kept undercover. They were giving him uh, like film cue names, you know, M one, two, three, and four, which would eventually be the, the songs on an album uh, I would work I would work on it and his engineer would work with me on just getting everything printed and recorded and then Michael would come in, I would be done. And then then you would leave at that point, then he would listen to all the different parts and the ideas and make his choices uh, based on what he wanted to use. And that seemed to be the way he wanted to work, uh, really getting getting everybody's ideas and response to the music you know, directly, which I which I thought was a great way to work. And uh, although we didn't get to sit in the room with him while he really did the intensive work, uh, you know, he was so, such a professional atmosphere and he was you know very, uh, uh, you know, just 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 a very wonderful gentleman. Very, you know, very grateful for it, any of the work or contributions and would acknowledge it. You know, I would get some phone calls, you know, saying, you know, oh, by the way, I just love the part you did on on blank and um, you know, really appreciate what you did and all that.
1: Isn't that nice? Yeah. I like to hear when people are appreciative like that, even at their level. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, Fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life. From the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music and keep on rocking. All right, you've worked with so many greats, but you know, I've already told you that for me, the greatest name you've worked with is Herbie Hancock. For anybody that doesn't know, Herbie Hancock is just a monster of music. Started out, you know, playing jazz. He was in Miles Davis's group, one of the great, you know, bands that was ever put together. Then he went on to have a pop career. He he hit the top of the charts with Chameleon in the nineteen eighties. You do a version of Chameleon with him that I just loved, okay? You sent this to me. I hadn't seen this before. This is Herbie and Jeff trading, you can't even say trading fours. I guess you were just trading parts on Chameleon. This was in Japan in 1985. We're playing it underneath right now. Tell us about that. That must have been an awesome situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, one, Kirby is one of the most generous artists and people, human beings I've ever ever met. And to give me a place on stage with him is one thing. To be as his, uh, his second keyboardist for the Rocket Tour because there were so many keyboard parts, and we needed to cover everything from Fairlight samples through uh, stacks of keyboards. And this was really him stepping into a pop format where he would be literally like the lead player playing the melodies of these instrumentals and needed a second pair of hands. In fact, even more, some of the other guys actually hits the triggered samples and things like that in in support of the songs of that particular time from, uh, from Rocket through the eighties. And when we did Chameleon, that version was the, hip-hop version using all the original Wawa watson guitar parts were done on turntables where he's using a wawa on the turntable to uh to do all the rhythmic chucking for the song so that was kind of the foundation of it and with the solo section we did a big uh big deal in you know, it, it, you know it solo section of it and he gave me a solo gave me a solo and we kind of discovered live that it would be very cool to you know trade eights trade fours, and do this dueling, guitar uh, piece, and it was just just amazing.
1: I mean, for anybody that doesn't know, you just mentioned the word guitar. Tell everybody what a guitar is, because most people will not know. But it was such a cool instrument at the time.
0: Yeah, it was especially a, a strap-on keyboard positioned like a guitar. Right.
1: It was a keyboard that made you look like a guitar player, okay? And it's around the neck and it's it's dangling. I mean, very cool. And, you know, again, I go back to Herbie Hancock. This guy was a master of so much, so many types of music, you know, from straight ahead jazz. And then he he segues into this pop thing, you know, as you said, a hip hop kind of thing as well. And then he played all the, you know, with Chick Korea, so many wonderful duet situation i mean just an an enormous musician for you to be on stage with him and you're not just holding your own i mean you're battling him that must have been something
0: oh it was it was a blast and then you know unfortunately, people won't be able to see it here as we actually did uh trading our keyboards but beyond trading f- fours and riffs right you had your hands on his keyboard if i remember right which and played each other's instruments uh, together. It was, it was crazy fun. It was, it was just crazy fun. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And he's that kind of guy. He's not a, you know, the serious jazz. He's about really being creative and exploring things and really having fun doing it. It, it was a real blast.
1: Just amazing. All right. We've, I guess, started the song fest portion by playing that. Let's go on to the next one. you got a song that you gave me by Celine Dion called call that man. the man he needed here. tell me about that
0: yeah call the man that was a cover song that was submitted to her that she decided she was going to do with Jim Steinman, he only produces the songs that he's he's written that's his that's that was his thing there and he's really the only person who could produce his songs really adequately to bring them across so they asked him to produce an extra song on the album. And that wasn't really uh, something he was really game to do, but they convinced him to do it. So he said, "Well, look, you can do it, but I'm going to need Jeff to to come on board with me and produce the actual track because it was more of a pop track and a machine-based track that was uh, was the approach. it was a it's a beautiful song called "The Man." And so what I did was I uh, basically went in took the original songwriter demo and built a basic track for him. And then, uh, and we, uh, we co-produced with, uh, uh, Jim and Steve Rinkoff, his producer, uh, his co-producer for the, uh, for the album. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gorgeous piece. And really she, when she heard it, what she, the kind of vocal and the thing she felt that when she felt this was like a real musical prayer and she wanted to sing it in, in that fashion. And uh, she did three takes, all which were absolutely stunning. And uh, the vocal everybody will hear very little copying done of her of her vocal that day, literally uh, gorgeous.
1: I find it interesting you telling us that she only did three takes on it because sometimes the producers will have an artist do fifty takes or whatever. And I never really understood that. For me, personally, if I go into the studio, particularly with my band, if we don't get it by the third take, there's something wrong. I always think it's got a fresher version when you can hit it straight away. so i'm I'm glad to hear that she did it within that three take thing,
0: yeah, yeah. no, that's uh, that's excellence. You know that's that's that level of uh, amazing musicality and and feel that that an artist like her
1: you hear about some artists these days where the producer, has them do like I said, fifty plus takes, and then they take a word from this take and a word from that take and a phrase from that take, and they put together what I would call a Frankenstein kind of piece. It may sound great at the end of the day, but it's not an artist doing their thing. It's computer generated, if you will.
0: Yeah, I mean, for certain artists, it you you need to do that, and you don't have the somebody that has the mastery of a singer like that, like like a Celine or or others uh, all up in that that league and again songwriting is different today the sound of the songs I mean comping has become in art in itself you know so I, I I've, I've lived in both worlds doing a million takes and getting a performance that you could consider uh, a masterful sounding performance after so much comping it's unfortunate it's a lost art in a lot of ways in terms of being a singer that has the performance chops to be able to sing something top to bottom and make it really uh, a, a true performance.
1: You know, speaking uh, again about the Beatles, I think I remember a story that on that, maybe it was their first album. They went into the studio and they cut the entire album in like eight hours or something like that. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. To me, that's the way you do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that's, That's really exciting, Uh, but I guess the other part of it is where you make, and I think the Beatles might be responsible for this too, is to make the studio your playground. Oh, yeah.
1: They went to a different extreme at that time. You're right. But I'm just saying as a band, you know, live music, you're a live musician. You play live and you've been playing live for, for a long time. You want to have a band that's so well rehearsed. That you can just go into the studio and boom, just get it within the first couple of takes. At least for me, that's always been the goal.
0: Yeah, preparation, being prepared. You know what? What used to be rehearsals are now pre-production. You know, think of it as the pre-production we need as a band to do for the record is to be able to nail that track down and really be comfortable, so we can just let go and let the uh, the energy you know shine through.
1: You say be prepared. I was a Boy Scout. That was the motto of the Boy Scouts. Be prepared. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And I know the preparation even I've I've admired Joe Bonamassa doing our rehearsals for the Hollywood Bowl. I mean, it was all about being prepared. The band had already been out in a European tour for 2-3 uh, months playing almost every day. Uh-huh. And they were just on it. It was no question about that, but they wanted to be very prepared, so that when they went in with the orchestra, there was no doubt that they were comfortable, had their vibe set up, and were left the space where the orchestra was going to be playing. So uh, that uh, that I really appreciated a lot, rather than just rush in and say, hey, we're going to stick an orchestra behind you and have it, leave it at that.
1: Right. Okay, well, that's a good lead into the next number, which is, I think, called Curtain Call, which you did with Joe Bonamassa. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. Curtain Call was really a very cool t- track that they wanted something that was cashmere-like, but had uh, acknowledged sort of this sort of Middle Eastern-ish riffish sort of sound that we've been doing on some of his songs. Just a lot a lot of the impact of uh, like Zeppelin even on, on his harder rock uh, songs played a part in that so that was kind of like a, a touch point or a point of reference for doing those songs so uh, they had cut the original track just uh and i got sent basically even i think it was before they uh they actually had final guitars on it but the basic core track to do the string arrangements to, and then they would finish off the track and i did uh, uh, originally just strings only version of it keeping it real raw and uh, it, like I said, cashmere-like in terms of the sound of the strings being the real guttural, uh, let's say, Paul Buckmaster, deep, raw, deep strings. And so with that particular arrangement, we went on to bring to do the Hollywood Bowl version. I, uh, I needed to bring a uh, full orchestra in. And that was really a lot of fun to, to add, you know, winds, brass and percussion to that. Did you
1: orchestrate for the whole orchestra?
0: I did. Yeah, because they're there. And a lot of ways you're compelled, one, to write for the full orchestra uh, because it's an opportunity. And uh, I think, you know, both as an, as an arranger, especially to be able to do that. And, you know, when you look at a concert like that, when you have an orchestra of the caliber of like L.A. Philharmonic players, you know, you you want to you want to have them uh, fully contributing to it. And it was it was it was a great, a great challenge it was there was it was scary at times in terms of really getting those arrangements to be sure they were really going to work and it t- turned out turned out beautifully
1: you know i'm I, I, it's funny you mention that because i remember reading beethoven in his later years when he was going deaf he wrote symphonies i think where he heard everything in his head because he couldn't hear anything uh, his ears were gone at that point. Can you imagine writing for an orchestra, writing an orchestral piece where you can't hear anything? It has to all be internal like that.
0: That's uh, one I I admire that so much. And there there are people that can people that can do that can hear that. But uh, you know I, I rely I, I rely on being able to hear hear what I can do. And I, I always thought that those that's that's the way Beethoven's uh later years is incredible
1: crazy where did you learn to orchestrate like that did, was it from school or did you teach yourself or what
0: it was it was a combination of all of the above all the above in in school and actually in high school I, I went to greenwich high school and they have such an amazing uh, music department i i got the opportunity to to one to, be conductor of some ensembles for different programs and had to do some early arranging back then, which now I <laughs> I'm scared, I'd be scared to hear what I did back then. But <laughs> during during the over the course of years uh doing that and uh uh you know, some private study and then from there, you know, learning learning things on my own and having the, the amazing sample libraries we have nowadays, you can get to try out your ideas and be able to hear a good facsimile of them back, you know, understand if you were doing the right thing if you were really getting it
1: it's very impressive to me i have to tell you because i've never done anything on that kind of scale and to me it's a talent that's quite a remarkable talent kudos to you thank you all right last song we're going to listen to this was one of meatloaf's big hits i'd do anything for love but i won't do that Mm -hmm. Tell us about that one.
0: Yeah, that track we uh, we cut the basic in L.A. Um, Bill Payne was on keyboards at the time, so he's he's, a, he's an incredible rock and roll piano player. Roy Bitten played on a lot of the main tracks. He was Roy Bitten was always Jim Steinman's piano player, and my my job was either coming in as as on organ or synthesizers and sound design because Jim Steinman style productions and Meatloaf productions really. Have a lot of lot of treatment to it, and telling the drama and the story of, of that, and so it, nothing is held back in terms of, of the uh, uh, you know the explosions, the intensity, the bigness, you know, bringing in choirs, using voice choirs laid on top of regular church choirs, all the things that would support it. In addition to the live vocals that he would cut, but it was a it was a blast cutting with the uh, with the rhythm section. That's like the root of core thing. That's what I loved about, especially recording rock and roll in studio with uh, guys like Karen, Kenny Aronoff was on drums, for instance. And uh, let's see, it was Ted Pierce was on, on guitars in that particular track, in addition to Eddie Martinez. So just incredible, incredible players. Yes.
1: Well, speaking of incredible players, we've been speaking to an incredible player here Jeff Bova, you have worked with everybody, including the magnificent Herbie Hancock. I'm so impressed with everyone that you've worked with and all the things that you've done. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast.
0: Thank you, Robert. It was such a pleasure to be here.
1: We're now going to listen to that song that started out the podcast. It's my song called Python. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode.
0: Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at Robert at And you can hear more from his band at Project GrandSlam.com and at the